Uh, let's see here. Okay, well, I guess I'll just start with the synopsis then. Or, um... Intro of the show, man. Yeah, show yeah, first. yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. <laughs> all right, hey, uh, everyone. My name is Jonathan Kreitz, and I'm here with Mr. Dave Atterbury. Hey, how you doing? There's Dave. And Chris Tyler. Hey, what's up, guys? And we're here to talk about the first episode of the Netflix original series, Stranger Things, which, based on Netflix... Uh, Probably user data and spreadsheets and algorithms has been specifically designed to appeal to all of us, you know, directly. Yeah. Uh, because this show is a combination of a lot of the things we all love. Um, I heard it initially described to me as like imagine like 80s era Amblin movies, ET or something like that, mixed with 80s era Stephen King. But I think it even goes further than that. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, just even in the first episode, there's definitely uh, hints of John Carpenter, or not even hints, just, you know, homage (laughs) to Carpenter in a lot of ways. Um, I feel like there's definitely a a Lynch Twin Peaks vibe going on here as well. Uh, There's just, it's just a mishmash of a lot of things that we all love and and it's, uh, and I think it's actually more than that too. I think it's greater than the sum of its parts. So we're going to go through a synopsis of the first episode real quick and then, uh, give you our thoughts about it. So I'm going to start. Uh, the show opens on November 6th, 1983 in Hawkins, Indiana, and it pans down to the Hawkins National Laboratory, which is from the U.S. Department of Energy. And the lights are flickering in a hallway and you can tell something's wrong. And the door slams open and a man runs down this hallway to an elevator and whatever is chasing him actually grabs him from inside the elevator he just ran into. We then cut to our young heroes, uh, Mike, Dustin, Lucas, and Will. And they're playing D&D or, you know, it wasn't really clear if there was an actual D&D campaign. I never played Dungeons and Dragons or any other RPG, but it was something like that. They do show source books later on, so yes, okay, cool. It, well, whether or not that's a real campaign, who knows? But they are using real D&D materials, gotcha. which doesn't surprise me with this show. Uh, they're playing in Mike's basement, and in the background, you can see all kinds of uh, nerd decor, including I saw a one sheet for Carpenters, The Thing, which yep. hopefully, I don't know how old these kids are exactly supposed to be. They're in junior high, I guess, but. They're about 12. Okay, that 12 is pretty young to see The Thing. I mean, maybe, maybe <laughs> other people, but for me, I, I would have been probably freaked out at 12 to see The Thing, but. Anyhow, uh, in their campaign, the boys are confronted by a terrible monster called the Demogorgon? The Demogorgon? Yeah, the Demogorgon. So in their excitement, they get too loud, and Mike's mom ends the game. And as the boys are leaving, Will, one of the boys, uh, he tells Mike that he rolled a 7 on his fireball, and that means that the Demogorgon got him. Uh, There's an odd flicker of the lights that's just like what we saw in the hallway at the very beginning as the boys leave the house. And Dustin and Will race to Dustin's turnoff for his house, and they're going to race for a comic. And Will wins and claims Dustin's X-Men number 134. Um, so, uh, as Will continues on the road to his house, he goes by, I guess, what must be like part of the National Lab's property. His headlight goes out on this dark road, and suddenly he sees something in the road in front of him and crashes his bike. He runs home through the woods, and no one is at his house. And so, in a scene like very similar to me to the part of the little boys 
abducted in close encounters. The phone won't work, and uh, whatever's after him actually unlocks the door with its mind or telekinesis or something. Will hides in the tool shed and loads a .22 rifle, but similar to the man in the elevator, whatever is chasing Will uh, gets inside the shed and he's gone. So then we cut to the title credits, and I love these opening credits. The font is really familiar, or similar, I should say, to the cover of early King novels, and the music and the title cards remind me of the way Carpenter's films always open to. So in the episode proper, we open on the chief of police's home, and we see he's sloven, unkept, needs a shave, barely awake, taking some sort of medication. Uh, he's alone, and I think we're supposed to assume he seems pretty unhappy. Yeah. Uh, next is Will's house, where his older brother Jonathan and his mother Joyce realize he is, uh, realize that he isn't there. And they didn't communicate on their work schedules the night before and realized neither of them were home when he was supposed to come home. So, Joyce is waiting on Chief Hooper when he arrives at his office and convinces him that Will is in fact missing. He's not playing hooky, he's not that kind of kid, but Hooper's still skeptical. I believe it's Hopper. Is it Hopper or it's Hooper? Hopper. Ah, yeah. shoot. That's alright. I was thinking it was uh, Hooper, you know, Hooper. But, uh, yeah. <clears throat> I wish. That would have been a little too on the nose. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a few. Yeah. I mean, you got a Lucas and a little group of the kids, you know, so you yeah. never know. But, uh, okay, so she's waiting on Chief Hopper. Sorry. Um, at the lab, a team of men led by Dr. Brenner descend into the same hall we saw the night before, and they're armed and in hazmat suits. And there are what looks like organic scorch marks all over the walls and the doors. They enter a chamber where there's a large pulsating cocoon on the wall. It came from here, and the girl couldn't have gone far. Um, we then cut to the said girl, and she's in the woods behind a diner. Her hair is shaved short, and she's in a hospital gown, and she we find out she's starving. So Hopper interrogates the boys at school and realizes that they don't know very much that could help other than the road that Will was last seen on on his way home. And so what Hooper, do they call that road, Jonathan? Ooh, I didn't catch that. Merkwood. Oh, Merkwood, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. They're arguing about that. That's right. So Hooper warns them to stay away and to not go looking for Will. Um, Joyce, we see a scene with Joyce in the woods at her son's secret fort, remembering back to when she had a moment with Will there about tickets to see Poltergeist. He tells her he doesn't get scared anymore and that he can handle it. The man who runs the diner, Benny Hammond, is trying to figure out who this girl is, but all she does is stare at him and eat. She has a tattoo on her arm of the number 11, and she indicates that is her name. While Ben is on the phone, we see 11 stop an oscillating fan with her mind. Hooper finds Will's bike. He's starting to realize that something is truly wrong, as none of these kids would leave their bike like that. Um, at the lab... We see a group of people listening in on local phone calls, and they hear Joyce call her ex-husband, making sure he didn't take Will or the Will didn't go to his house in the city. So Hopper arrives at Joyce's house and returns Will's bike. Will has a moment in the tool shed where he thinks he hears or sees something. He's growing more convinced that something bad has happened to Will and orders his deputies to organize a search party. Mike is eating with his family and says that he should be out looking for Will, and his mom replies that Mike and his sister are grounded until Will is found. The search party worked its way through the woods, and we learned that Hopper had a daughter that died, and maybe this is why he's take, starting to take this case seriously, as it doesn't look like he, he takes his job seriously before. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, what did he say when he came into the office to his secretary? Something along the lines of, like, 
you know, the mornings for meditation or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Coffee and contemplation. Contemplation. <laughs> That's I, I need to put that above my desk at work. The mornings are coffee for coffee and contemplation. Well, yeah, but he talks about the last time anything happened was like when an owl attacked somebody's hair. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's like this is literally small town America. Yeah. There's there's shades of Amity Island here, you know, where nothing like this will happen here. Nothing bad could happen in our little town. Um, so Mike, that night, of course, after his mom telling me he can't go look and the sheriff telling me he can't go look, uh, radios the other boys and they decide to go looking for Will. On his way out, Mike sees uh, Nancy's boyfriend sneaking up to her room. And back at the diner, a woman claiming to be CPS shows up to get Eleven. She kills Ben and Eleven runs, and then she uses what appears to be telekinetic powers to blast her way past two men and escape from Dr. Brenner. Uh, back at Mike's house, Nancy won't uh, have sex with her boyfriend, which is always a good time for survival in films from this era. Um, so immediately, of course, I thought, is she going to be the final girl, you know, like Nancy from from Nightmare? Um, I guess we'll see. Joyce and Jonathan are looking through pictures to use for missing child posters, and she starts to break down, and Jonathan urges her she has to be strong. Just then, they get a bizarre phone call from what sounds like Will's muffled breath mixed with static and the same noises that the monster made, and Nancy collapses. I mean, Joyce collapses, sorry. And as Mike, Lucas, and Dustin search through the woods, the rain begins to pour. They hear a growling and movement in the bushes and come face-to-face with Eleven. That is the end of Chapter 1. Oh, my God. It's like this show reached into our subconsciouses, right? No, well, it's, it's not even that. It's, I mean, it is, yes, but it, it's also Netflix just, oh, we see all these people are watching, you know, Twin Peaks over and over again in the X-Files and everything else that's on here like that. And we're going to make a show that, that fits with that too. Oh, yeah. Uh, I saw an interview with the creators and they, they said that their, their mantra was really dark ambulance. Nice. So that's ex- and I think that's a great description of what they ended up with. It really does feel like a mix of all that kind of stuff we liked in the '80s, but just yeah. darker. Yeah, yeah. Little, I mean, yeah. a little bit darker, a little less of a Hollywood veneer to it, like you would get in a in a Spielberg movie. Yeah. Um, well, and even even I would say much darker than something like The Goonies, which is about another like precocious group of you know little misfits banding together to solve a mystery or something like that. Yeah. Uh, the the kids in this, though, and I love the Goonies. Right? I think we all know that. Yeah. The kids in this, there's no actorly stuff going on with them. It's really like you're watching real 12-year-olds. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah, it's very much they, they managed to get that kind of Spielbergian performance out of the kids where they just, they don't really feel like they're acting so much as reacting to everything around them. And, uh, and I think it, just their interactions, it just feels like they set up a camera, let those kids go play some D and D and then, yeah, they feel like real friends. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to go, just so everybody knows we're going to go, we're spoiler free past. We're only going to talk about this episode. Yeah. So we're going to go one episode at a time. Um, yeah, Hero and I have seen everything, but you have not seen. <laughs> yeah, you've sorry only seen to this hold episode. you guys. Yeah, I've only seen this one. <laughs> so sorry to hold you guys. Back. No, no, it's uh, all right. There's plenty. There's oh, plenty good. to chomp through in this. Um, yeah, it's. Um, 
every time something, every time I would see something in the background, like the thing poster or the fact that his sister's called Nancy, it immediately did the same thing to me. Like, and my brain is already putting all this stuff together. Like, I'm clearly seeing where they're drawing the influences from. I don't know if it's going to mean anything when I started watching it. Um, other than the fact that it's just, it is taking place in that time frame. Yeah. But I mean, you have, it, it really does pull from all of that stuff. It, everything that you mentioned. Um, I mean, a lot of the shots are carpenter shots. It's static camera, putting stuff in a proscenium and just letting it happen like in Halloween. Um, the stuff inside the lab is, you, you know, you're getting that not quite body horror vibe, but you're getting that Ridley Scott slash James Cameron alien feel from all the stuff that they're doing there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, no doubt that cocoon on the wall definitely, you know, the organic, the way it's so organic looking. Oh, yeah. But also, that, it looks like it's burned in, too. So, like, that combination where it's not really, you know, it doesn't look like anything organic that we know, but it is somehow alive, too. It reminded me of that. Um, yeah, the little things like that, though, that's why I was saying earlier, I feel like this is going to be greater than the sum of its parts. I mean, you can have lots of cool references to nerdy stuff, but even even the X-Men comic, they, they joke about, you know, winning at the beginning. Um, I don't know, I, I love that era of X-Men, and I knew the 130s was Dark Phoenix, right? So I was assuming it was the one where... Jean is destroying, you know, she's gone to the Dark Phoenix persona or whatever, and she's destroying the X-Men logo with her hand. It's a very famous cover, but really it's the one before that. Um, but I, I don't think it's by chance that, especially when we met 11, we meet 11, I don't think it's by chance that that's the storyline they reference in the comic they argue over is where some girl with telekinetic powers you know, is dabbling with whether to stay with their friends or go to the dark side or whatever. And then we meet this girl who has like Marvel girl type powers. So yeah, I think there's lots of, lots of, uh, it seems like already the lots like that it's all tying together. It's not just for show. Oh yeah. No, I think it's, it's, I think it's very intentional. I, I noticed on this, um, I rewatched the episode tonight again, the first episode. And uh, one of the things that jumped out at me um, that's very subtle, but I'm, uh, that I, I want to double check on it to make sure I'm not just talking out of my ass. But I'm pretty sure, like the the elevator, the big elevator that they use that takes them down, yeah, into 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 the the bowels of the of the complex where the the creature is. I'm pretty sure the doors like open and operate the exact same way the the doors on the elevator did in Aliens. Oh yeah, uh, you that, know what I mean. When I first I watched it, I I noticed I was like, man, that's I really that it clicked with me, and then it wasn't until tonight I thought I'm pretty sure that that's that's mm. what it was. And I'm I think all of the things you see, like the the background posters and some of the shots and locations and the way they set it up, I think it's very much intentionally referencing that '80s stuff um, to to strike those chords for sure. Right, right. That's a good point. Yeah, that that elevator. <laughs> It's kind of a crazy elevator for, I guess it depends on how much machinery and stuff they're bringing down. This one guy is going to jump in this yeah. giant elevator, but yeah. yeah it's it, the size of a freight elevator. Yeah, it definitely yeah. reminds me. You're right. It reminds me. I have, to, I have to go on YouTube or pull the Blu-ray out or something and see if I can find that last clip uh, of Ripley trying to get out with Newt and see if it, if it matches up. I think yeah. it does, yeah. When she's taking the elevator down to the bowels of the, mm-hmm. the processing station, I think, yeah, it drops down and then it's the you know the big sideways doors and then it lifts up. 
the the other thing with the references in this, it never feels like it's trying too hard to say, hey, this is the 80s, hey, this is the 80s, hey, this is the 80s, like a yeah. lot of stuff does now. Yeah. It's yeah. just sort of yeah. there. They're playing Dungeons and Dragons. They did the same thing in E.T., which I realized was contemporary at the time. Mm-hmm. But it never feels like they're trying to shove it down your throat, you know? They never make a point to, you know, make fun of the clothes or anything. Right. No. It's no. it's just that that's the reality. You're, yeah, you're literally the, going back in time and watching something that could have been made in 1983. Yeah, I thought the wardrobe right. was very, um, like stated, like it wasn't. Yeah, like it wasn't in your full. face, no leg warmers well, and right. Well, that's the know. nice part. You know, it's it's 83, and so the the aesthetic is still pretty much it's yeah it's still 70s and mm-hmm. that's one of the things i've noticed in the first episode is like oh yeah everybody's still dressing like you know the carpenters you know what i mean they right. still look like you know that late 70s damage they don't have all the neon stuff yet no poison and bon jovi haven't hit big yet so no no well and i think and i and, I, and like you said uh, chris I, I like they're using it to create mood they're not just making references and i think that's why like one of the things i like the most like the music the the carpenter-esque synth score is oh, just yeah. so good at evo- at, at being uh being evocative of that that kind of time frame in movies and so um well, that's one of the things can... i oh go ahead go, no go ahead. sorry david i didn't mean to interrupt you oh i was just saying i'm looking forward i'm I hoping we can get a hold of a, a score for this yeah so um, well, I, was say, all, I have all the music already. I don't need any of that '80s music, but <laughs> I, right. I, I already have it. So, I, but I want that score. So. Yeah, I was gonna say like that. That um, something about the music cues is what gave me also like that Twin Peaks feel. You know, like I, I don't know. It just it, like like you said, like setting the mood or almost setting the scene. Um, yeah, it's it. Well, I had to laugh when I saw your synopsis because I literally had the exact same thought with the opening credits when the, when the main theme kicks in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I was that's I was a hardcore Stephen King reader back in the late '80s and so that was the literally I literally said that to my wife I was like that is the Stephen King font. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I, I actually looked it up. I looked it up while uh, we were getting ready tonight because I just wanted to see what the font was and. Yeah. It is an actual font. It's uh, I guess it has a long history with sci-fi stuff. In fact, the actual font, it's called... Uh, oh, man, I don't know if I know how to say this. ITC Benguiat. Ben ben it's B-E-N-G-U-I-A-T. And it's named after the guy who designed this font and 600 other fonts. But oh. it was used, it says here, it's uh, reminiscent of Stephen King paperbacks. Um, it also is actually the font that was used in the nineties, uh, like the next generation Star Trek movies, but in a, you know, a lighter, not a bold, but a, like a lighter version of it. Um, yeah, I thought that was interesting. So that was definitely purposeful. Um, yeah, all I can say is like, I, I was hopeful that it would be good, but I was surprised at how much like I was invested in the story, even after just the very, very first episode. And I like these Netflix series because it's not like uh, I don't feel like the first episodes are pilots in the traditional sense. No, they don't have to no. sell a show. They show right. <laughs> it's right. Here's your here's your one hour that you're getting out of whatever you need to tell your story. Yeah, so. and they of course they still you know set it up 
they set up the story, they introduce all the main characters, all the same things a pilot do or a pilot does, but they like yeah, something about not having to really sell the show on the first episode and it, that feels different than a normal pilot, I guess, and I like it. I think it's yeah. Well, and the nice yeah. thing too is like I remember like like I had in this in my mind I thought okay just the way our lifestyle is and the way things work when you have kids and you both work like I figured we'd get one episode under our belt and you know and it would take us the better part of eight weeks to get through all eight episodes and it was like that first episode ended and we immediately were like next like yep, we, there was no thing. hesitation we were not. And, you know, and that first episode ended about the time we normally hit the sack. And it was like, there was no discussion. We were not going to bed. We were going to keep right. watching. Yeah. And so I think they just, like you said, like they did a masterful job of, of sucking you in and establishing the world. And um, without that piloty feel of being over explanatory, you know, and, and too on the nose with this is our our setup for the show and how it's going right. to repeat every week and all that kind of junk you get with, you know, regular shows. Well, and usually like, uh, it just feels to me a lot of times, second episodes of a TV show usually almost seem like they're almost redoing the pilot because so much work and effort and creative yes. energy and everything else has gone yeah. into a pilot that the second episode sometimes can feel like, you're Pilot just kind of rehashing that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Where I found like the other Netflix series we've watched so far haven't had that feeling, and I'm hopeful this one won't as well. So, uh, no, I, th- I don't think you have to worry about that. Oh, it's good. literally, all right, next episode, we've got seven more hours to tell the story. Just go. Sweet. Well, I'm going to have to get on that and looking forward to it. So, yeah. uh, yeah, you'll, yeah. You'll, you'll definitely, you'll definitely enjoy it. I can't wait. Yeah. So, um, this show, it was written and directed by the Duffer brothers. I think I'm saying that right. The Duffer brothers. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they direct all the episodes. They'll have to. Most of them they did. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. Well, awesome. Cause I actually felt like, yeah, the, the direction was really good as well. And in the writing, the writing was very natural. Um, I was a little worried about Winona. I'm not gonna lie, but uh, this isn't this isn't shoplifter off her meds, Winona. This is what she. I, not to spoil anything, she gives a great performance. Well, I thought she was really good even in this first episode because the mother missing her, you know, frantic because her child is missing could, you know, not come off great, yeah. you know. But I feel like she played it. She played it really well. Yeah, she yeah. does. A, she does a great job. Um, and not to spoil anything else, but the little girl who plays Eleven, I guarantee you she gets an Emmy nomination. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, she's that good. Yeah, she's very emotive with her eyes, even because she didn't say much, at least so far, so. Yeah, I think, I think right around the fourth episode or so, I, that was one of the thoughts I had. Um, was it just the, that the, sh- this show has come together and gelled so well from top to bottom in its production. It's just one of those, um, destined to be a classic show, you know, uh, just yeah. a a, a, per, a top-notch cast from top to bottom, and just you know, this is just coming together in in such a good way. And awesome. what the hell happened to Matthew Modine? The last time I saw him in something was the Transporter Two, but before that, I think the last time I saw him was in Vision Quest, and he was. <laughs> the last I thing I recall seeing him in was Dark Knight Rises. That was the last thing I recall yeah. seeing him in. 
Oh yeah, was well, he the mayor or something in that? He was the chief of police, chief of police or yeah, detective yeah. or something. He, God, he was old. No, I know well, what you mean, Hero. To me, it's Vision Quest, then Dark Knight Rises, then this. That's like, <laughs> like what happened in between? <laughs> well, yeah. I didn't even recognize him at first. I was like, isn't Matthew Medine in this show? Uh, and then I realized, oh, he's he's the the guy chasing them, but with the hair and yeah. I, he looks really skinny. He's always uh, been skinny. Yeah, I don't know. For maybe he just looked older and skinny or something. But yeah, I just didn't recognize him initially. But uh, yeah, yeah, and he, he did a great job, kind of bringing in, you know, being the face of that kind of ominous uh, Stephen King Firestarter vibe mm-hmm. side of the show and the mm-hmm. government face and all that. And yeah, the Man in Black, or you know, one of the Men in Black. Yep. Yeah. 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 It. It. The casting was was just right on point with this. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the thing. Besides him and Winona, I don't. I don't think I like Hopper. I didn't recognize him from anything else. Uh, um, not a lot of Law and Order state uh, actor. I, I only remembered him from uh, um, Quantum of Solace. Was he in Quantum of Solace? Yeah, he was like the he was the skeezy CIA guy that was kind of on the take. Okay. You know, like he was he was with. Um, Oh, Bond's friend that has been in a couple of the movies with him. Um, Felix? Yes, Felix. he was with, yeah, he was with Felix. Remember on the plane and they were kind of meeting with the, uh, the quantum guy and making like a deal and, you know, okay. he played kind of a smarmy, kind of sleazy CIA hmm. guy, you know. That's well, one he's thing a great actor because that's not how he comes off in this. No, 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 he does a great job. I know he just, just in this first episode when you, when you watch him, um, I notice on the rewatch especially too, like, you know, he starts out just being, you know, you can tell like he's obviously kind of a schlub and he's kind of let himself go and he's got this kind of cush sheriff's job, you know, or chief of police, I should say, you know, and, and you can just see like just in his body language, the moment he finds the bike, you know, and it's like all of a sudden as the whole thing turns on him and as yeah. the episode goes on, he gets more and more serious and intense. Yeah, what I was thinking watching his performance in this, I looked at that and I said, you know what, if they were doing this in 1983, that would have been Kurt Russell. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I, yeah. You could you could see Kurt just nailing that role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, no doubt. Yeah, he definitely, I, I tried to put that in synopsis because he, he, he did a great job of kind of showing his progression from all oh, those kids just run off or maybe he's with his dad to... Oh no! Something something has happened in our town. Yeah, he's a he's he comes across as a great cop in the show, but I mean, and you also see why he is the way he is now too. It's part of his his arc and the you know the story. I don't I can't remember if they mentioned it in the first episode though, but they did. It they does do. get they, they do, do. while the, while they're while they're out searching at night. The teacher that the I didn't mention this in the synopsis, but the kids, uh, our main troop of little heroes or whatever. They are in the AV club, and the teacher that leads the AV club, um, they call him Clark. It's Mr. Clark, right? Okay, I, yeah. I didn't catch his name, but Mr. Clark. Either he yeah. tells someone, or someone tells him that Hopper lost a daughter. Yeah, and he was a yeah. city police officer. Okay, they didn't well, say that part. Well, it's interesting too. But, yeah, because okay. Clark. That's okay. Clark uh, asks him about his child, and oh, and he Hopper, says. Yeah, it talks like she's still alive, and it's yeah, somebody else yeah. that tells him, like, oh, no, she died a couple years ago. Yes, yes. I did catch that, which I was like, oh, boy. That means something yeah, terrible damaged. happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, damage. Well, and then I immediately now, now, I honestly have not seen anything about the show, but 
I also thought it wasn't happenstance that the little runaway is a girl. Then I'm like, oh shoot, I don't think this is probably his girl, but that's gonna complicate things when he eventually runs into her, I imagine. I uh, won't say I won't yes say or anything. no. Don't say yes or no, I, I guess. Won't say but yeah. that was just something that popped in my mind as I was thinking about the show. So anyhow, uh, thanks guys. Uh, do you have anything else that think about the first episode? Um, that's how you start a show. That's the, yeah. that's when you yes. if you're gonna do a cliffhanger, that's kind of how you no do doubt. a cliffhanger. Well, and man, I, I I'm just yeah, I'm really really really. They did enough with the monster. Like at the beginning, I was like, what is this? Some kind of like Slenderman type knockoff or something mm-hmm. like. Uh, but they did enough with the monster where it leaves lots of questions. Like I swear that Hopper can hear the monster or even maybe he even saw something in the shed before his deputy comes in. And then at the very end of the episode, like you said with the cliffhanger, it sounds like the monster is there as well, but then the girl shows up. So yeah, I'm excited to see where it all goes because there's definitely something something going on there. Yeah, there's lots going on. And they, <laughs> and they, and they don't wimp out. They You get... No, everybody gets their you get their arcs and you get you get the whole story. So awesome. it's not it's not one of those deals where you're gonna feel like, why did I watch this? So <laughs> one other thing, uh, Dustin, the little boy without his front teeth. I actually looked up what he said he had. It's real. It is real. Yeah, and I figured it was. I I don't know if the actor might even actually have that syndrome. Yeah. Yep. Uh, because I like. I, just was surprising to me that uh, he didn't have his teeth, but I guess it is a real, real, uh, real syndrome, and um, thought and that was interesting as well. Yeah, and that kid—he's—I mean, he's—they're all just so real. I mean, and it's just yeah. Yeah. his friends don't give him crap about. They're all just—they're all just friends. It's like it's the most honest kid acting I've seen in forever. Oh yeah, yeah. Just the way that they they interact and bond—you can tell that they've. They've all, you know, their little fellowship of the Goonies. You know, they've all kind of been through the ringer, each of one of them. And, and yeah, it's their, I love their arc over the whole the whole series. We'll get into that more as the following episodes come up, but, yeah. Yeah, we, awesome. we, should, we should stop talking before we stop. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've got plenty of time to talk about the rest of it. Yeah. So, well, I'd like to thank you guys for, for coming on. And oh, it's a pleasure. I'm, yeah, uh, thank you. I'll uh, get on episode two, and we'll talk we'll about it soon. Fantastic. All right, guys. Well, um, thank you, and we will check back in with episode two soon. Thanks for listening. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. 
We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and a number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True Freaks. Freaks.